Having been a founding member of King Crimson and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, arguably two of the most influential progressive rock bands from the 60s and 70s, Greg Lake's name is synonymous with a genre of rock music that incorporated an influence of European and classical elements. Having picked up the guitar as a 12-year-old, Greg has played and performed for over 50 years and is as passionate about music now as he's ever been. In fact, 2012 will be a busy year as he is about to embark on his Songs of a Lifetime North American tour. With the concerts being performed in intimate settings, Greg will open up the floor to his fans and will allow them to share thoughts and ask questions about his music and his career. 2012 will also bring Greg's autobiography in both audio and written formats, which will give a behind-the-scenes peek into his storied career. Inside Music Cast is proud to welcome Greg Lake. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining us today. No, it's lovely to be here. <laughs> hey, listen, we've been chatting about uh, almost some uh, experiences well after your career has been uh, developed and you've been on tour for so many years and playing, you know, having such an impact. But, you know, you, you grew up in England and, uh, you know, uh, you know, we know that you've been playing guitar for an awful long time. But uh, when you, as a kid, uh, picked it up, how old were you? you? You were actually very, very young, weren't you? I first started playing guitar when I was 12 years old, uh-huh. and um, I took lessons, guitar lessons, mm-hmm. for a couple of years, and um, uh, it was just one of those things. I, 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 I think music had somehow got to me when I was very young, but not in a way that I would recognize. Mm-hmm. It just did affect me. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing, I think it was probably the tune Green Sleeves. Oh, yeah, right. I remember being affected by it emotionally as a child. Mm-hmm. And I must could have only been, I don't know, I just don't know, yeah. seven years, eight, or eight, eight years old, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, but I always remember it, and I think it was that tying together with the early music of, of Little Richard and Elvis. Mm-hmm that inspired me to pick up a guitar, you know. So you said, you mentioned Greensleeves. And, you know, obviously you had a, a, a tune that you created that uh, uh, was called I Believe in, in Father Christmas. Yeah. And was that inspiration a harken back to Greensleeves? I mean, did, um, did you, had you always wanted to write uh, a I Christ- don't know. I, I think, you know, the, the thing about Greensleeves is that it is a sort of minstrel, medieval um, English sure. medieval minstrel song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I suppose the big difference between King Crimson and ELP and most other rock bands at that time was that King Crimson and the ELP drew their influences from European music Absolutely. rather yeah. than from the blues and rock and roll, which most other bands at that time took their influence from. Yeah, that's right. true, exactly. So, I mean, their influence was, was, was American, mm-hmm. uh, and great it was, fantastic, and I loved it, and it was what initially inspired me um, to play the guitar. But mm-hmm. when I came to actually play music professionally, I really looked to European music for mm-hmm. my roots. And, and in a, really, it was in a, a conscious effort to be different. Yeah, You mm-hmm. know, I wanted to be original, and... Yeah. That seemed like one way of maybe being a bit different. Right. So who were you listening to then around the time? Well, I mean, uh, there, there were all kinds of people, you know, it, because 
European music, of course, just like American music, isn't one thing. Right, yeah. You know, you've got Django, Django Reinhardt to Beethoven to, you know, there's all there's all types of, you know, we talk just now about minstrel music, mm-hmm. medieval music, you know. So you've got all these different mixes of music. When you listen to Stairway to Heaven, for example, that beginning of that song is really a minstrel um, yes. a little bit of minstrel music. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and so, you know, that was it. So I, I think there's always been that thread of European music in, in, in my music. Sure, sure, sure. Is it correct uh, that you your, your first guitar teacher also taught Andy Summer? Was that is that true or not? He taught Andy Summers and he taught Robert Fripp. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you'll hear that he, he taught him there was this technique called cross-picking. Okay. And you'll hear it in, if you, for instance, you listen to a record by the police called Every Breath You Take. Yeah. That picking guitar in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that technique is the same technique as I use on From the Beginning. Okay. Or right. Robert Fripp uses well on the solo of Schizoid Man. Yes. Yeah. It's these very rapid, fast, up and down strokes on mm-hmm. guitar, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just a technique of playing. And that was Don Strike's um, technique. And he taught all three of us. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to staying back with uh, with your beginnings a little bit here, and I wanted to talk about singing and vocals. And tell us about discovering, you know, your your own vocal gift. You know, you obviously you're you're a tremendous singer, and you're you know obviously your your voice is known <laughs> worldwide and through the you know past four decades. But tell us about how it developed and and where you got it. I was curious about you know even your family. Were your family musicians, singers? No, 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 no. No, and you know to be honest, my my voice just developed from, first of all, from influences. Mm-hmm. You know, too many to name, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like I could point to one person uh, and say, oh, you know, they influenced me more than anyone else. But um, a lot of different influences, all the way from people like, well, the obvious ones, of course, would be Elvis. Yeah. And then, you know, but but people as, as, as un- unlikely... For instance, is Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. She's a fantastic singer. Oh, absolutely. You know? mm-hmm. So I, I drew from her, and I drew from... There's so many places that I could tell you that have never had an influence upon me. And so... And I still do, and I still pick up things to this day. Mm-hmm. And I think, wow, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. If only I could sing like that. <laughs> of course, after a while, you try and build a little bit of that into your own performance. Sure, sure, sure. yeah. And that's how that's how my voice developed. Again, the one thing I would say is that I tried not. You know, one of the things that I tried to avoid is being the term I would use is mid Atlantic. Okay. You know, a lot of English rock singers sung with an American accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you right. know, and it's not right, and it and it never struck me as being quite quite believable and so I've always tried to sing with an English accent because that's who I am you know yeah. and so that really is the, all I could tell you about me as a vocalist is I try and do it as well as I can and and, and the only thing perhaps that's, that is different slightly different about me is that my influence is European rather than rather than American I sometimes actually miss that soul you know, soul singing influence, yeah. mm-hmm. that gospel influence, yeah. the blues influence. You know, it's very expressive, yeah. really great. And of course, it's never really been part of my my arsenal of, of weapons, and it and it is such a shame. I, I've not, you know, I'm actually seriously thinking about making a record of singing songs like that. You know, yeah. and learning how to sing. With soul, it, it's much more difficult than it seems. We've talked to some people about the blues and soul, and and yeah. just just the rawness and the crudeness of. I mean, it's almost like you've you've whittled everything off the bone, and you're stuck with the bone, and you're going to make some something out of it. And it's very very difficult to do. The only thing I can tell you is that I know how to do it, yeah. and I can tell you simply how to do it. You've got to live it. Yeah, that's true. You've got to live it. <laughs> it's got to be part you've of your soul. Breathe it. Yeah. You've got to be it. Yeah. You know, it's not something you do, it's something you are. Yeah. It's something you become, and then you are it. 
Yeah. And then you've got your version of it. And then the question is, 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 you know, if it's not great, then you've got to improve it. And then you start, and that, of course, is where, you know, these little things that, that you know, uh, would, that you learn really from the masters. Yeah, that's amazing. Is it the safe to say that, you know, while we're talking about music and, and your schoolmate, Robert Fripp, uh, you know, were you seeing at the very beginning of the King uh, Crimson days, uh, were you seeing music totally different? And, and where did it point you? Uh, at the beginning of King Crimson, Robert and I, of course, knew exactly what the, each other knew. We'd both been taught by the same guitar teacher. Mm-hmm. So, right. I mean, I knew everything he knew, and he knew everything I knew. And so one thing that wasn't obvious when you looked up at that band was that the lead singer and bass player was actually a guitar player mm-hmm. who knew everything single note that the actual guitar player was playing. <laughs> yeah. right? And that was sort of subliminal. That, that You never saw that, yeah. but that was a reality. And so Robert and I had a, an, an intimate understanding of the music we were playing. I mean, right down to where it came from and, mm-hmm. you know, and bits and pieces. And we used to practice our guitar lessons together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had this understanding. And then you had the weirdest thing was, after that was, Ian MacDonald, uh, who played the mellotron and the flute and the saxophone, mm-hmm. among other things. He was a multi-instrumentalist, had never been in a rock band before in his life. He'd come from the military. He'd come from a military brass band. Wow. <laughs> Straight into King Crimson. Now, how weird is that? <laughs> and then you've got Mike Giles, right? I mean, I, I can only tell you, when you listen to his drumming carefully, you, you'll understand that he is very special. Mm-hmm. He's very unique. Mm-hmm. He's, got, he's, got, he's the only drummer I ever met in my life who, had, who could have complete um, independence in each arm and each leg, so he could have four time signatures running wow. simultaneously. Oh my gosh! That's <laughs> and you know, it was, but he was a terrific player with a wonderful feel. Wow! That was the strangeness, really, of of King Crimson. Mm-hmm. What a blend! What a cocktail of strange things that was, you know. You know, in in regards to what you're talking about, about about the, the the guys in the band at that time, they're coming from such diverse backgrounds. Tell me a little bit about the chemistry. I mean, when you guys first got together, I mean, you were mixing each other's character, personalities, talents together. And how long did it uh, did it really take before it started gelling? Well, it was pretty instant, and uh-huh. because um, we had one principle, which was that. Listening was more important than playing. Players who aren't very good, they have to concentrate on what they're playing. Yeah. But if you get to a certain level, you don't have to think too much about what you're playing. It's like a bit like breathing. What you really want to concentrate on is what other people are playing, so that what you play is really the right thing in response to it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. King Crimson was very much of a listening band. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you would find some one of the band would not play for quite some time, would just remain at tacit, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and do nothing, just because he didn't feel the right moment to play. Interesting. And then all of a sudden he start playing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you, you would find often that no two performances were the same. Mm-hmm. And we used to start sometimes, we would have at least one song in the set that had no time signature and no key. <laughs> so, you know, you'd have people going off at different tangents. Wow. And, and, and really, what happened was, the best idea prevailed. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody would play something, mm-hmm. and if it wasn't a great idea, nobody would really join in with it. Are you referring to more of uh, uh, of being in the studio when you were actually laying down tracks, or are you talking about when you were doing live performances? I'm talking more about live, really, because yeah. okay. when we got to the studio, we knew what we were going to play. Yeah. All we didn't really know is exactly how we were going to play it. So, you know, really, you know, we're talking about how you were influenced from a European perspective and your music was more European and had more of a classical element to it. But really, when you talk about what you're doing on stage, it has, you know, really, that's kind of a that's kind of a page out of the jazz improv sort of. It really is. Yeah. You know, and I'm really, 
And I don't like to say it, but it <laughs> is, really. It was very freeform. Yeah, very freeform, yeah. It was very freeform, and yet even that we didn't want, really. We, You know, we wanted some form, mm-hmm. but it had to be form that was based on, you know, understanding. Form that was based on the fact that people had latched on mm-hmm. to something. Mm-hmm. In other words, if, you know, if, if Ian would come up with a, a wonderful figure on the flute, and everybody would listen and get inspired to that. That's what we would play. That would be the song. Mm-hmm. But if he came up with the line, and it really wasn't that great, you know, Fripp would come out with something. Yeah. Or I would start playing a bass line. And so you, you'd have different triggers for the way these things would, would um, evolve. Mm-hmm. And so, look, sometimes they weren't that great, and, you know, it would be all right, and like that. Other times they were phenomenal. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, because when you, when you get on a roll, it's really wonderful, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're talking a little bit about King Crimson here, and, and we want to get back to that uh, to a degree. But just prior to forming King Crimson, uh, you were in a band called The Gods. And in hindsight, this band was, you know, comprised of what we know now is, is really an all-star cast. I mean, you know, the members of the band were guys who eventually went on to play for some influential bands such as Mick Taylor from The Stones. You had Ken Hensley and Paul Newton from Uriah Heep. And uh, who else? You had Brian and John Glasscock, who those guys, you know, played with in bands like Jethro Atoll and, and The Motels. And, you know, tell us about your involvement with The Gods. The Gods was a sort of musical roundabout. Well, everybody played for the gods at one time or another. <laughs> it was a, it was one of those bands that was a vehicle. It was a stepping stone for people. Uh, you know, it was a band. It toured. Um, I never made any recordings with them because mm-hmm. I, I never really knew what the band was. I never, you know, I joined it because it took me from a semi-professional life. Uh, in my hometown in Dorset, mm-hmm. Pool in Dorset, up to London, yeah. where the professionals, you know, were. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. And so joining the gods enabled me to move to London and join a professional band. And that was the motivation. But, but the, the problem was that it was the first band I'd been in that I didn't form because I loved or respected the other musicians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just joined it because it was a professional band <laughs> that would get me up to London. You know? <laughs> and it was really the wrong motivation. Yeah, yeah. Except for the fact, of course, that it did get me up to London and and uh, and, and helped me move on in my career. Definitely, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, but the gods never had any sort of musical definition. Yeah. They'd always play other people's material and... Uh, it was one of those things that where the nobody in the band was very dedicated to it mm-hmm. as a musical form, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just a way really of earning money and, and, <laughs> and playing and getting about the country, you know. Right. But it did have a purpose, you know, it did have a purpose. It did, it did, funnily enough. And, uh, uh, but I wasn't in it very long. I, yeah. You know, it's just... It didn't have any appeal for me, really. Sure, sure, sure. You stayed in, uh, you know, you know, like uh, we went back a little bit to the gods, but getting back to King Crimson, you were in King Crimson for around a year uh, when you began to help form the start of uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yes. Um, tell us about the transition there that uh, was pointing you, in a way, uh, to a new little platform here. Well, it was very simple. The, we... Uh, King Crimson were on tour in the United States, and we got to uh, Fillmore West in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ian McDonald and Michael Giles, the drummer, and Ian, the uh, saxophonist, flautist, Mellotron player, he uh, both of them, they really didn't like the flying and mm-hmm. the traveling. Really? Yeah, and they decided that what they would rather do is make a studio album together. And that they would, didn't didn't want to continue touring, and so Robert, you know, came to me and said, "Look, you know, we've we've got this. We built this band up, and and we've got the name now. It's established. You know, um, why don't we get two more players in and continue on King Crimson?" And I get, I thought about it for a second, and I but and I almost instantly. I realized that, that Ian and Mike were irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have got two other people to come in and be in the band, but it wouldn't be King Crimson. Yeah. And I just felt that the band had been so 
special that, and the chemistry had been so special that it really just, you couldn't just replace half the band. And bear in mind, Ian MacDonald mm-hmm. wrote at least half of the material. Right, right, right. So you're not just, you're not just, yeah, it's like getting rid of Paul McCartney out of the Beatles. You say, hold on, you know. <laughs> yeah. Who's going to replace him? Right. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's not, it wasn't. So I didn't feel comfortable about just carrying on, you know. Yeah. And um, but I said to Robert, if you if you want to carry on with the name, then by all means, you know, do it, and and uh, with my blessing. Yeah. And I actually did help Robert put together the second album uh, until he found other members to to join the band. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, but just coincidentally, uh, on that same evening, was on the same bill was performing the Nice Keith Emerson. Really. The Nice. Look at that. <laughs> and uh, it was just, he was just on the same show. And I, I went back to the um, hotel in the evening and walking through the lobby, there was Keith Emerson's manager. Mm-hmm. And he stopped me in the lobby. Hey, Greg, how are you doing? All right. He said, oh, Keith, I'd love to have a chat with you. I said, fine, I'm just going to make a couple of calls and I'll be down. You know, I went down and met him in the bar and um, we started chatting. And Keith said, you know, how's it going? And I said, well, it's not really, Keith. It's ending. It's finished. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, wow. I said, he said, that's unbelievable because um, he said, I'm just, I'm just wrapping up things with the nice, really. I've, he said, I can't take it any further with these, with the people I'm with. Mm-hmm. He said, I wonder if it, I wonder if it would be um, a thought of forming a band together. Just like that. Just like that. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know. That's I mean, silly. why not? Wow. We, you know, we, I respected Keith. As a player, he was a fantastic musician. Yeah, absolutely. And there was I with no band. And there was Keith looking for a band. That's interesting. Wow. So we we agreed to do it, and we got back to England and started to look for a drummer. That's amazing. Up to that time, uh, uh, how many times had you crossed paths with him or even uh, collaborated with him, um, you know, musically at all? Almost nothing. Nothing, nothing huh? But I mean, I'd seen him, you know, because England's a small place. Yeah, we'd play. We, you know, often we would play on the same bill, or you know, we're on a festival together, or something like that. And um, so I, I knew about Keith. You know, he was one of the great uh, virtuoso players. Right. Really. Mm-hmm. Him. There was him, Jimi Hendrix, and Eric Clapton. Really, were the three virtuoso guys at, the, at that time. Yeah. You know, as you, as a musician, Greg, um, how do you see yourself? I know you're a frontman sometimes, with often with the bass, but how do you see yourself primarily as a guitar player or a bassist? Um, I don't know. Really? Or is it a blend of both? I'm a, I'm a guitar whore. <laughs> <laughs> My guitar dealer friend calls me. Um, it's because I love them both, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I... I mean, you know, when I play the guitar, I'm a guitar player. And when I play the bass, I'm a bass player. I mean, I, it was funny because when uh, Robert originally asked me to play the bass, you know, because he said, look, we want to keep it down to a four-piece. Mm-hmm. You know, if you play guitar, then we've got to have another bass player, then we'll mm-hmm. five-piece. So I said, oh, I, you know, I, I thought about it. I thought, how hard can it be? It's four strings instead of six. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, I, I just said to Robert, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll play, I don't mind, I'll, I'll play bass, you know. Yeah. And not realizing, of course, that, that it's a whole different world. Yeah. It's a whole different game. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was I was made aware of it uh, very abruptly by Mike Giles during the first rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we started playing some, I can't even remember what we were playing. And all of a sudden, Mike started to, bang on the snare drum, you know, furiously banging on this snare drum. <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me as though I'd, you know, I'd just murdered somebody. <laughs> and, it was, and that was half, of, half a look of disbelief on his face and half a, half a look of sort of sorrow, pity almost, you know. And he said, look, you're playing on the offbeat. I said, what? He said, you're playing on the offbeat. 
And of course, you know, Dumbo here, <laughs> I, I didn't, even, didn't even occur to me. He said, no, no, no. He said, listen, when I play the offbeat on the snare drum, you are silent. Otherwise, the snare drum doesn't cut through. Yeah. You of know, course, when you say it, of course it makes sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's simple logic. But to me, before you know it, you'll play on every beat. <laughs> yeah, it's like the first the first rule of of drums and and basses is don't don't yeah, play don't on the play same on note. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you want a drumstick in your ear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Greg. We have we have several correspondents around the country and also in Europe. And uh, Uwe Reith, our correspondent in uh, in in Germany, has a question for you. And he says this. Uh, he asks, Have you ever played? Uh, you've been playing alembic and wall basses for for a while. Both of them have very distinct sounds are these your favorite instruments um you know i have to be honest uh, i play a lot of fender basses mm -hmm. i suppose really my favorite um, contemporary guitar a bass guitar maker is roger sadowski i gotcha uh he just builds these beautifully elegant simple elegant basses but the the quality is unsurpassed. I mean, totally beautiful. The sound is beautiful. Um, the Alembics were very, very nice. I mean, when, when they were making guitars for me, they were they were literally works of art. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they'd, be, they'd have lights all through the neck. The whole neck would light up. Right. Not sure, only sure. the side of the neck, mm -hmm. but the actual flat part of the neck, right. where the mother of pearl was, right. all of that would have lights in it. It would just... <laughs> It would look like an oil painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> they yeah. were incredible. Yeah. Um, but um, I had an, the best guitar I had from Alembic was an eight-string bass. Mm -hmm. eight Fantastic string. sound. You can hear it on Fanfare for the Common Man by ELP. Yeah. Wow. That, that shuffle bass mm -hmm. is the eight-string bass. Wow. Wonderful thing. But it was too heavy on the neck snapped off. Oh, my goodness. Too much tension from the eight strings. It snapped it off. Just, just snapped the neck. <laughs> That's amazing. And so that was no good. And um, but I mainly, you know, I got to tell you, I I always go back to like a Fender Jazz bass for bass guitars. I love Gibson J two hundreds for acoustics, but I love them all. You know, this is why they call me a guitar whore <laughs> because I love Martin guitars. I love Collins guitars. I love them all. That's neat. I cannot walk past the guitar <laughs> shop. <laughs> I cannot. Yeah. It's impossible. <laughs> well, there's so nothing wrong I with go, that. Go, if I, uh, yeah, I've just got to go in. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. You go in. That's so funny you say that because, you know, we just, uh, about a month ago, we interviewed Al Stewart. And Al, you know, was telling us about, you know, his guitar collection. And he said, it's a collection of one. <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah. He, he said yeah. he goes, I've got my favorite. And he said, I know there are guys out there that love, you know, to collect guitars. But he goes, he goes I can't do it. He goes, I like my one. And that's how I play. <laughs> that's funny, yeah. That's, well, that's, you know, that is, that is, that is like it is. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the truth of it is, they all do different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you pick up a Gretsch. I've got a Gretsch 6120. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're talking summertime blues, Eddie Cochran. Right, exactly. And this this thing whines. and It's <laughs> got that country twang and it whines. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it's totally different to a Fender Stratocaster. Yeah. And, and those, both of those are totally different to a Les Paul or a 335. They're all different guitars. Absolutely. They all do very, very different things. So that's the trouble. I only want one, but one of each. <laughs> and I'm not a collector. I don't collect the things, you know. Exactly. I don't collect them. I must have 50 guitars, but I don't collect them. I try, you know, it's a question of which one's got to go in order for, for a new one to come. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've had, I'll tell you what, I've had a lot of guitars three or four times. Have you really? same guitar, you yeah. know. <laughs> I've sold it and then I've missed it. You know, like, oh God, I've got to have it again. You know? <laughs> and I go and buy another one and then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I love guitars, yeah, I do. That's neat. Actually, it's quite fascinating how such a simple thing, like a bit of wood with a fist wire string stretched over it, can actually, you know, have such a 
control over your life. Yeah. <laughs> over your destiny. You know, it's controlled my whole life. I love this conversation because I can I can feel your enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know about. what it is. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> not always good, but I mean, it, it is incredible <laughs> when you think of that. Just that simple thing. Oh, my you God. Know? And in fact, it's controlled so many people's lives. And it's had Absolutely. such a big influence. Sort of like a woman, on huh? culture. In the, in the 20th century. Sort of like a woman, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, similar. Uh, Expensive as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God, Chris. <laughs> Expensive, yeah. I love it. Uh, you'll get me into trouble soon, boys. Uh, the, uh, the, the analogies. Yeah. Uh, you've mentioned before that, you know, one of your favorite bassists is uh, Sir Paul McCartney. And, and I was just curious about what it is about uh, Sir Paul's playing that captured your attention. Oh, hard to describe. Um, I love, well, you know, Paul. First of all, he's a wonderful musician. Yes. So whenever you hear him play something, it's usually dead right. He, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's not much you could fault musically with him. He's a great musician, not a virtuoso player in that sense, and he would wouldn't uh, claim to be. But ah, oh, beautiful, you know. You'll never hear the wrong bass note being played from Paul, you know. It's, everything's perfect. It's, uh, yeah. The, 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 the voicings are perfect. He, when it, you know, the other thing is, is when he doesn't play is the question. You know, it's what he doesn't play, which is so lovely. Yeah. You know, the spaces he'll leave. And, Absolutely. Uh, you listen to a bass part something like, with a little help from my friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That active bouncing bass part you know I played it when I toured with Ringo yeah. I played that bass part and I learnt it note for note exactly it's a beautiful part um, it's so bouncy and so articulate it's almost a bit like a Bach piece you know it's it's very very articulate and you know so as a bass player and of course you know there again you listen to him play some you know 12 bar thing He's really pumping, rocking, you know. Uh-huh. He can rock, and really rock. I saw her standing there. You know, I'll tell you, there's a way some bass players play eights, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. And some of them, when they play the eights, it just drives like a tractor, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, And others, it just bangs like somebody banging on the door. Right, yeah. <laughs> You know, and he's got that way that when he plays eights, you're on the train. You're yeah. moving. You know, right. mm-hmm. he's pushing. He's very driving fun. it along, driving it along, and all you need is what he had, and that was a drummer who knew exactly where to put the offbeat. That's neat. That little bit behind the beat, that fraction late, that little, that late, slightly late delivery, which really gives you that backbeat feel. You know, mm-hmm. and those two common, those two things were. The Beatles, you know, that was the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Tell us, you know, keep staying on that topic uh, of Ringo Starr. This is something we were going to jump down to at some point, but uh, tell us about that tour with Ringo. I think that was back in 2002, and, and that, I mean, that had to be a, a, just a fantastic, you know, experience to play with, not only just playing with the Beatles, but you also had some really great people on that tour like Ian Hunter and Howard Jones and Sheila E. and Mark Rivera. Yeah, uh, but how, how was well, that experience all, all great for you? Players, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was yeah, it was a joy working with Ringo. He is a gentleman and uh, a lovely, lovely man, and a great drummer. People underestimate how good he is. Yeah, he's better than you'd think. Uh, he doesn't play any drum solos. Yeah, just doesn't want to do that. And uh, but but when you talk about feel, yeah. There's not many people who've got a better feel than Ringo. He's got this lovely... Uh, they used to call it the feels in the pocket. You yep, know, that's what I was right going to say. Yeah, yep. where you want it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When you're playing along and you feel Ringo's snare drum behind you, mm-hmm. you know what it was like in the Beatles, you know. Yep. Yeah. Just faithful. It's like a clock. Yes. And his drum kit sounds really good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just acoustically, it sounds really good. The Beatles was no accident. I saw them live. They were phenomenal. Wow. They were phenomenal. They sounded phenomenal. And we're talking now, you know, almost 
pre-PA days when you maybe had two single speaker columns on one each side of the stage right. in mono. And that was the PA. Mm-hmm. And little Vox Amps. And I'm telling you, they sounded fantastic. Wow. How, how many times did you get to see them or cross paths? Uh, you know, did, I saw them twice. Did you? Mm-hmm. Live, yeah. And they were stunning. It was like a religious experience. That's amazing. That's neat. Hey, Greg, we're going to take a short break so we can play a track from your live album release that was recorded during your 2005 tour. And uh, Eddie and I both agree that we both really love this song. It's an ELP song, and this is From the Beginning.
Let's talk a little bit about uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer because the music, uh, you know, it comprised everything that we've been talking about. Uh, you know, electronic, uh, uh, prog rock, rock, jazz, blend, blues, classical, orchestral elements, and uh, it was such eclectic music. And um, you know, you're, you know, you and Keith Styles, and you know, but but it worked. It all came together. Very very sophisticated way of of creating music. Um, you know, looking back on on ELP. And uh, you know that the music is still so popular. There's such a demand for it still. Um, why does it keep on living? Uh, why does it keep on moving forward? What is what is why is it so magnetic of a sound? Uh, ELP was at its best. ELP was extremely innovative. You know, it had its own sound, mm-hmm. and it had its own approach to music. Really. Mm-hmm. But this is best typified on albums like Trilogy, yes, Brainside Surgery, of course, mm-hmm. and Tarkus. Tarkus, uh-huh. These are the albums where the music couldn't be anyone else. Right. It's so individual and so unique that, and, and I'm, if I may say so, very European. Absolutely. Yeah. In its strange sort of way. And that, or at least, you know, it wasn't based on soul or blues music. And and so it was different in that way, and it was this weird blend of, of, of course, ELP was a very dynamic band. Mm-hmm. You know, from one moment you'd go from the intensity of something like Tarkus to a song like Still You Turn Me On. Right. Yeah. And when you see that go down in the drama of a big arena and it's intense, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. then you know the dynamics are impressive. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the thing that was. Uh, impressive about ELP was was you know these these musical shifts that we would go through, and then finally, I suppose, you know, playing a classical piece like Pictures at an exhibition. Mm-hmm. When three guys do that from beginning to end, it's quite a stunt. <laughs> yeah, and that's amazing. Yes. Uh, and so you know, we had a few card tricks, I suppose, that we could pull, and um, and people loved it, and um, and we loved them, and there was a very harmonious relationship for a while. Yeah. That music also came at a time in music that uh, where there was uh, there were other bands obviously experimenting what, you know, with what was termed as prog rock, but really you were you guys, you know, ELP and bands like, you know, other bands that usually get generalized into that same category like Yes and 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 a few others. You guys were really doing something that hadn't been done or hasn't been done really since, and that's, you know, really enveloping a lot of classical influences into the music, right. not really worrying about creating a, a four-minute hit, rather, you know, you had tracks that were an album side, you know, at times. But what I think is unique about that is that your music sort of lives in that sort of legendary sort of time period where mm-hmm. we just don't see that anymore. There's no, there are bands that really aren't creating that kind of music. And, and, and in a sense, I think that's really sort of a special thing because your music now lives in that period, in that time, that no one has really replicated. You know, the when you look back on it, in actual fact, you take an album like Sgt. Pepper. Uh-huh. That was actually progressive music. Right, well, absolutely, yeah. It really was. And uh, just people just don't put it in that bracket. Mm-hmm, they should. <laughs> it's all about labels, you know. But it really, Sgt. Pepper was, was one of the earliest progressive albums it marched forward, it stepped forward mm-hmm. into a new world of music that no one had ever heard before. Right. Yeah. I mean, what a bizarre thing. And sounds that people had never heard before. Mm-hmm. Probing strawberry fields, you know, really, really right out there. Music that was not uniform yeah. and, and totally unheard. Yeah. And so, really, I, I, I would like to see myself in that tradition, mm-hmm. not in the tradition of, you know, peevish prog. <laughs> There's a lovely description for you. You know, <laughs> all concerned over the minutiae and the bullshit. And, right. you know, mm-hmm. no, progressive music is about just good music, mm-hmm. but different music, mm-hmm. original music. And really, original music using the European influence is its roots. That's really the basis of what I would call progressive music. I really don't want any label, to be honest. Right. But but if 
But if you want to talk about it seriously, there it is. Mm-hmm. And you know how the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame can deny that this genre of music exists, or that it was hugely influential, uh, and in America, mm-hmm. is quite be- be- bewilders me sometimes. It's the same with me. Yeah, I'm 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 surprised about that too. But again, then again, what I know about the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is is. <laughs> Is <laughs> is probably nothing I should express here, but well, no, 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 no. But it's a shame because you know it, there's a whole. It's like having the teeth missing in the front. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, somebody's got like knocked two teeth out, mm-hmm. and they're missing, and they should be there because you know, like if you look on my website, there's a, there's a little thing by one of the guys from the Red Hot Chilies. Mm-hmm. It says how he grew up on ELP music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it had its influence. These things had influence upon people. Absolutely. Steve Lukather came up to me one day. Oh, no, I know what it was. They, they did a, Toto did a, a recording session for me. Yeah. And this was many years ago. And Steve Lukather came up and he said, do you know the first guitar solo I ever played? And I said, no. He said, it was Lucky Man. Wow. <laughs> and it's those sort of things. Now, I mean, so all I'm saying is, Everybody influences, if you're any good, you, you, you know, I was influenced by American artists, mm-hmm. and I would, I, would, I would openly admit that and want to admit that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It enriched me, you know, but it seems what the American Rock and Roll Museum are doing is they, they're just trying to pretend an entire genre of music didn't really exist. That's amazing. And that's quite wrong, really, and... Uh, I mean, I don't want to wail on about it because I truly, I <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. Chaps, I don't really yeah. sleep over yeah. it. Right. You know, you mentioned Steve Lukather and uh, and his first solo. Um, you collaborated with him and also Jeff Procaro. The, uh, obviously, these guys are from Toto. Yeah. Uh, they, I really did the work with Toto. Was more to do with my solo records. Yeah. My early solo albums. Okay. Although they were just, you know, Toto would play. In fact, most of the hit albums you'll hear around. Anywhere from nineteen, I suppose nineteen seventy-eight to nineteen eighty-five. Mm-hmm. Anything that was made on the West Coast probably had Toto or some of them <laughs> uh, in it on absolutely. the record. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean they played on almost everything. Everything, yeah. They were every record you heard was Toto. Mm, yeah. You just didn't know it. You know? Right. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I mean, they could walk in, and they walked into my to my session. And it was, they would do things first take. And if they didn't get it first take, they didn't just go and do a second take. They walked out of the studio. They had a band meeting outside when someone got a severe bollocking. And then they'd walk back in and they'd replay it again. And then it would be right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how they were. They were great. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable. They were first take guys. Absolutely. Unbelievable. And, uh, and the late Jeff Beccaro, I watched him play, and the thing that struck me, which was quite different to Carl Palmer, is Jeff never played any cymbals. <clears throat> you know, uh, Carl always used to be playing ride cymbal, you know, or sizzle, you know, yeah. going along. Uh-huh. And so I, I said to Jeff, I said, you know, I, I notice you don't play any any cymbals. And he said, yeah, well, you don't want all that 10K hissing on your record, do you? <laughs> <laughs> but of course he was right. Yeah, yeah. You don't want all over your damn record. I mean, you pay millions of bucks to get a Dolby bloody limiter or whatever to take the hiss off. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you don't want a drummer put it back on for you. Yeah. It was absolutely right. And so all he would play is, you know... You, Bass drum and snare drum, boom, bang, boom, bang, boom, bang. You know, no cymbals. Mm-hmm. You listen to those those um, Toto records, Africa, Rosanna. Right. Mm-hmm. Almost no cymbal going on. That's an interesting point. Absolutely good. Yeah, Steve Lukather is a good friend of the show. We've had him on several times, and Eddie and I have uh, gotten to know him pretty well. And and yeah, when he, when you talk about those two guys, Luke and Jeff Procaro, you know they're oh. not just they're not just a guitarist and a drummer. I mean, these guys are just world class musicians in every sense. So you know what, Steve Lukather could drop a guitar. 
guitar on the floor and it was so <laughs> I think he has done that before. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he, you know, you always get you always get that feeling that no matter what he did. Just, funny enough, I, I used to watch Jimi Hendrix back in the very early days. Yeah, and Jimi used to do a thing with he would play the guitar with his hand rather than you know a bit on top of the keyboard. On top of the guitar board, rather than underneath, playing from underneath, yeah. it's it's I would be on the other way up, <laughs> and he'd just play it, and it would be unbelievable mm-hmm. what would come out. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you just want to give up. You want to give up? Don't do that. <laughs> oh no, stop! No, you hurt me now. You know, because you knew you were never going to be that good. Uh, <laughs> now I have to quit. <laughs> you know, you knew you were never going to be that good. And so it was punishment, really. Yeah. Well, let's jump ahead. I want to talk about what's happening here with you right now. And in, in April, you'll be setting out on your uh, Songs of a Lifetime tour. And yeah. r- right now, it looks like your tour dates are primarily in the States, with your first two shows being played up in Canada. But from what I understand, this is going to be kind of an intimate setting you know, for the fans. I mean, you'll, I think you're planning on opening up your show, and part of it's going to be you know, set for questions and answers. You know, people, fans can actually uh, you know, communicate with you during their shows. Let me let me just tell you how it came about. I'm I'm currently writing an, an autobiography. Right, right. And um, what I've, I've been writing this for some time, and as I've been writing it, it's come it's come to my attention that certain songs were pivotal in my life and in my career, you know. And then the idea struck me of putting them all together in one show. Also, with these songs, as of course, come along with certain stories attached to them. So, it, you know, the idea of came of doing this tour, um, and I called it Songs of a Lifetime, because that's what it is. It's songs of my lifetime that were pivotal in my career, but also to the people who've shared in this journey with me. And some of them haven't shared it all. Mm-hmm. Some of them have shared parts of it. But there's something in there of each person's life, in a way. And, and, you know, these are not only my songs, but they're songs by other people Mm -hmm. that have been influential on me or on my career. Okay. And so, as I say, it's a combination of playing those songs, telling some stories, but also because the audience that's there has been on this journey together with me. We've shared this journey together. I want them to be able to um, to have a participate in it and ask questions if they want, or you know, if I play a song, then I would like them to be able to tell me a story about where they were. Right. And so we get a chance to exchange. It's more like a sort of a celebration of of our time together, really. Yeah. That's a great concept, and uh, you know that's something that longtime fans have stuck with you for you know thirty plus years will really appreciate. You know, I think they'll enjoy it, and and I would just point out, I I hope that it that that, uh, it's a little. I I don't want to be just sat on a stool strumming an acoustic guitar all night. It won't be that. Yeah, and it'll be a little more lively than that. But it will be intimate, and they'll be in small venues, and people will be able to. Um, get up close and personal, and we will be able to talk together. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned a second ago your autobiography, and, and from what I understand, you're going to have an audio version that's going to be available around the time uh, you began the Songs of a Lifetime tour. I hope so, yes. And, and I think you'll have a paperback version to follow later this year. Is that I'm right? going to be doing three volumes. The first, you know, I'm going to release it first in three audio volumes. Okay. And then finally, in, in, in print form as a book, and also as one complete audio book. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was just curious, you know, in, in um, you know, what are we going to learn? I mean, I know you're not going to, you, you can't give away any secrets about what we're going to learn here, but what are some of the items that, you know, we'll learn about Greg Lake that perhaps we as fans are unaware of? What I hope you'll take away from it is what it was like on the other side of the fence, because I haven't written the book about, the normal things that everyone saw, because they were they were at those shows, you know, they were at those shows themselves, and they saw what what went on. So there's no point in talking and reliving all that stuff. 
what I've tried to make the book about is stuff they wouldn't have seen. Mm-hmm. It was out of the sight of the sight of the public, really. Yeah. And but was relevant nonetheless to what was happening. Um, things behind the scenes, and you know, um, I'm not really interested in that same old rock and roll drugs. You know, oh, we all fell off the thing on the drugs. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not interested in that bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but there's far more important things absolutely to be told. And relevant and funny, some of them. Yeah. Very, very funny. And so I'd rather dwell upon those things that the audience would never have seen because they just couldn't have been there. I want to take them somewhere they've never been. Yeah, that's you know, cool. Because they were at the concerts. They saw the ELP shows. Yeah. No point writing about those. Mm-hmm. You could buy most of them on, you know, a DVD or something. Yeah. So I've tried to make it somewhat privileged insight to behind the scenes. Yeah. But it is not one of those kiss and tell books. It's not, I'm not going to get into a lot of, you know, uh, dramas about who was fighting and all that shit, you know. But it, it, it will be honest and it will be truthful. But some of it will be quite dramatic. And, and um, I, I think I think it makes an enjoyable read. I'm not really the right person to ask, to be yeah. honest with you, because okay. I wrote it. But yeah. <laughs> we'll soon find out when yeah. people start reading it how much of a revelation they think it is yeah. and how interesting they think it is. You exactly. know. It's interesting to me because when I look back on it, you know, I learn how much I took for granted. Just, I, you know, things that I just didn't think about at the time. Yeah. That, that now looking back on it were quite extraordinary, you know. They get to ask me what they were, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're about to wrap up here, but I've just got a couple um, uh, a couple more questions. And, you know, just looking forward, you know, where does where does Greg Lake go from here? I mean, are there any musical challenges that await you or anything you want to explore musically? Yeah, there are, because, as I said to you earlier, I'm now considering trying to draw upon influences that I missed. I'm, I'm looking, at, looking at probably making some recordings that embody other influences. Mm-hmm. I consider that to be quite a challenge mm-hmm. and, and a fascinating one in a way. Yeah, We'll see. We'll have to see. Uh, but that's, that's what I think I'm going to do. Yeah. And I'm going to do it in the summer. Cool. Very neat. And then I'm touring in, uh, in Europe in the fall. Oh, that's good to know. We've got a lot of uh, European listeners here on Inside Music Cast, so yeah, oh, that, good. that's good to know. Good. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Greg, uh, you reunited with uh, Eric... Uh, or with uh, Keith Emerson a couple of years ago um, at the High Voltage Festival in London, yeah. where, you, where you performed gee, was a lot of songs from Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Asia, and King Crimson. And how did this uh, reunion go? How did this? Uh, how did this carry out? Uh, it was uh, very nostalgic. Yeah, it was very nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of people crying backstage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because they'd been with the band when when it began. You know, and there was a lot of emotion and. Um, and the show was very nostalgic, and it was also quite exciting because a lot of young people came along to see what it was all about. You know, they've heard about ELP. You're the legend of this ELP. You know, who were they? And so a lot of young people turned out to see it, and that was exciting too. That's neat. So it was kind of weird because there was a mixed audience. It really was. You know, a lot of young kids and That's a lot good. of sort of people in their sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who would come to just for the nostalgia of it? You sure. Know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was lovely, lovely show. It got recorded, and it's available now. Yeah. Oh, it did get in recorded. Your stores. Okay. Well, they don't have stores anymore, do they? <laughs> it's Amazon now. You yeah. can go to or iTunes or something like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> it must. It must give you great pleasure to see that when young people come in and they start connecting with music that was decades old, but it's so good and and their interest and they dive in. That's well, I mean, fresh to them. Yeah. 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 It's wonderful. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing, and um, it's a tremendous privilege, really, to still be here, being able to perform at all. You know, yeah, and you know, for almost fifty years of, <laughs> yeah. of playing music, and still able to do a world tour. Yeah. Wow, amazing! I say to myself, "Well done, Greg." You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's not too bad, boy. You know, I mean, we'll say it too. Well done, Greg. Yes, well done, <laughs> Greg. <laughs> well done, Greg. No, I mean, I, the, the, the greatest thing of all is I love it. Yes, you 
I love it. I, I would do it for nothing. I just love it. It, it sounds like that. So all right, good. That's me. Well, Greg, we we can't uh, express how much we appreciate you being on the show with us today. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and, and we've learned so much. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you both. Best to you, okay? All right. Take care. All right, then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Greg Lake for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>